It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, hey everybody, welcome to episode 280 of the More Than Just Go podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. We also have Jaime Lopez Jr. on the line in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? Alrighty. So we're back after a couple of weeks off. So I guess we'll just dig in. We have a lot of, a lot of stuff to cover today. So uh, just a fact check. Um, those of you who got the newsletter, you'll you'll some of this will be repeats for you, but oh well, thanks for following off on uh, following along on the uh, email bandwagon. But uh, last episode we were talking about uh, I was talking talking about uh, Mac OS Lion, and I, I think we were t- we were speculating whether it was the first free one, but it wasn't. It was one of the first iOS's, or sorry, Mac OS's that was available on the Mac App Store. And uh, it actually cost, uh, I think it was $19 at the time, but now it's $27.99 if you want to buy it. And Mountain Lion, which is the next one, that's 10.7, and 10.8 is uh, is uh, $27.99 if you wanted to buy a copy of it today. But um, yeah, it was one of the first ones distributed without a, without a DVD. Um, in fact, so, you can't get it. So yeah. was Leopard after lion yes so oh, leopard the no. first free one no i think yosemite was like the first free one this was wasn't snow leopard a really good stable one yeah well actually snow leopard was the first one that actually had the app store on it like if you had a really old mac and you and you wanted to install anything from the app store, you had to install um 10.6.8 i think to get the app mac app store and then and then line came out after that right oh yeah leopard was leopard was 10.5 yeah the one after mountain line was was uh the free one oh it's mavericks yeah mavericks was, right was it Mavericks? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, 10 beta was Kodiak. 10.0 was Cheetah. Yeah. 10.1 was Puma. Yeah. 10.2 was Jaguar. Panther. 3 was Panther. 4 was Tiger. Yeah. 4.4 was also Tiger, but with the Intel chip. 5 was Leopard. 6 was Snow Leopard. 7 was Lion. 8 was Mountain Lion. 9 was Mavericks. 10 Yosemite. 11 El Capitan. 12 Sierra. 13 High Sierra. 14 Mojave. And now we have Catalina. Catalina. 
yeah. We have six more months to till we find out what the next one's called. Yep. So I don't remember paying for Lion, but as I'd mentioned on the show, this was while I was working at a company and we pulled off some some dusty MacBook Pros out of the closet. So maybe I personally didn't pay for it and just had IT buy licenses or something. Well, you know, it came it came with a lot of new Macs so that time. Obviously, it came with the Macs, right? But uh, yeah, but if you were on the upgrade path, like coming from an older OS, you had to you had to fork over twenty dollars for it right, back in the day. So yeah, and it because um, it used to be a lot more to get a to get a like a Mac distribution on on like a DVD. It was a few more dollars than, than I think it was the first low cost upgrade, right? So I mean, and, you know, of course back then people would just you know acquire various OSs however they could. You used to get like a gray disc with your with your Mac, and it would only run on your particular Mac model. It had something read the EEPROM, um, but you could also get like a commercial off the shelf one. Like I have seven point five and eight and nine uh, as like installer discs. Um, those are systems, and then um, yeah, and then the, the first beta. I think a beta, but even the beta was a hundred bucks if I'm not mistaken. Mark, remember that? Did you ever have the Mac OS beta? I did. I don't remember paying for it. I don't know. No, I, I'm pretty ago. sure we paid. We paid for uh, if you wanted to keep stay on the upgrade path. I'm pretty sure you had to pay for mm. for OS. More fact check for next week. Woohoo! All right, Jaime, you got you got a fact check on me, right? Yeah, this one came from a friend of the show and, and my former colleague, uh, Jeff Garner, who mentioned that during one of the November episodes, somebody had casually mentioned that Adobe InDesign was like 10 years old. And he's like, no, no, it's, it's like 20 some years old. Is it really? Um, yeah. 20? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he used to work at Adobe, so I, I trusted his um, yeah. his expertise on this. And then I looked it up. Since I like to put show notes, yeah. you know, links in the show well, notes. So, see. Driving I home. Mean, so apparently it was initially released in 1999. Yeah, I was going to say because because I came back to Ontario in 97 and we were using Cork Express and then we we were we were resisting going to InDesign but Carol and I were at a Macworld probably in Boston and um, they had a special Adobe event because in development it was called K2 because um, they were climbing this big giant mountain if you will um, and we were there the day that they they released it and so we got a couple of bags for like a cotton nice cloth bags that have the Adobe uh, InDesign logo on it the original one so yeah cool that was a while ago I have, I have some pictures from it somewhere but I, I can't uh, there's a big sort of granite fountain somewhere downtown uh, Boston near the Haynes building, Mark? The Haynes Auditorium? Yeah. The, well, down, the, like, you know how they had, they had a whole bunch of like, shopping concourses kind of connected to it? Yeah. The, the Haynes Auditorium was attached to the Prudential Center. Right. Yeah. yeah which yeah. was oh. a tall building. That was a big office building, but it had a, a mall yeah. kind of in the basement. Yeah. Because Carol, Carol had, a, by that time, she had a, a digital camera. So we were running around shooting stuff. And somewhere in my archives, I was stumbling across a thing uh, that we were talking about um, online. We were talking on Twitter about ebooks and um, you know like Kindles and that kind of stuff but uh, back then at, the, at one of the Macworlds they actually had a book that f- that was shaped like a, a paperback where you had folded the cover over that was wider on the left hand side and they called that an ebook and they were talking about ePubs and all that stuff in the early early days but that was like around the time of the, the Palm Pilot so yeah cool and then we have some Ask MTJCs Hummy yeah a couple of them from from you wait for me yeah I gotta go back and look at them up oh yeah 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 so a friend of mine I was telling you about the friend of mine at work that has this black ring and I didn't think much of it because another friend of mine has wears a wedding ring and I got them pictured here on the tweet uh, so one you can see clearly has like the the, re- the sensors on the inside of the ring and the other one is just a plain old black ring they look identical like in terms of look and feel and whatever but so I said one of them is an Ura ring and the other one is not that was my follow up uh, ask MDJC so an, an Ura ring would be what I didn't google it I assume it's some sort of wearable technology yeah so it, it's it's actually for sleep monitoring but you can also wear it during the day and it keeps it's like it like your uh, your your watch keeps track of your your pulse and your you know um, that kind of stuff during the day and so you can get like sleep cycles like how well you slept and 
that kind of stuff, right? Um, so my friend who wears it uh, says that, you know, he uses it during the day too because it also gives him stats on, on his day as well. So, and it somehow syncs. It's got like a, a post that you charge it on and that kind of stuff. So it's got like inductive charging. But it doesn't turn you invisible if you put it on? No. no. That, would, that would come in handy sometimes at work. Yeah. But he's he's the same guy that's got the coffee cup where he can sort of control the temperature of his coffee cup and it's hooked up to an app on his on his, phone, on his uh, chuckling because I think it's funny that uh, you have to have your coffee at a specific temperature before you can enjoy it. I drink cold coffee, so I don't really care. All right. And next one is again from me. So, I'll, oh, this one's from Mark. Um, so Steve Hammond, uh, who works for Apple in the education area, he's, uh, he's, he's actually the guy, he's the guy I wrote Pi Day Countdown for because we were doing, we were going to a uh, Apple conference and every year it would always be on March 14th and he would always remind us that was Pi Day. So we were, so I tried to get the app out on the store so that I could walk in and say, hey, download this app because, you know, it's for, it was basically for that day that the conference was held. So he's big into numbers and stats and stuff like that. And, and uh, so he was going on about this. He was talking about uh, um, the the zero. Uh, there was no zero zero thing that Mark was talking about. Mm-hmm. So it says next time one of, so this is for Mark, next time one of your calendar century decade starts with a one purist smugly telling you there was no year zero, tell them that there were only 19 days in September 1752 and ask them how they feel about that. Yeah, I knew about that, but you didn't. So I almost <laughs> got away with it. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny because we because there's been a lot of talk about that over the last couple of weeks, and and I had heard that um, the original calendar that we're currently working with was actually created by a, a monk, like a Catholic monk, and uh, he created the after you know the the AD years, right? And another monk later on, like I'll find the names for next week, but another guy came back in and he decided to to do the years before Christ, right? And he's the guy that decided it was no year zero, so it wasn't science, Mark. It was a couple of priests that decided whether there would be a year zero or not. Of course it's not no. science. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, the, I mean, the big the, the big debate, of course, is that everybody says decades, the decade starts with, with, you know, the year, the zero year, and then moves to the nine, and then the next decade starts on the next year, even though I know that doesn't millennials and millenniums and, and centuries and stuff start on the, start on the ones. But there you go. That was for you. There was still no year zero. <laughs> no, that's true. But then there was no year one either by that same logic, Mark. I mean, there's no year two. In fact, you know, if you if you ask the look at the Hebrew calendar or the Chinese calendar, they're completely the Hebrew calendar goes by the the phases of the moon, right? So. Mm-hmm. Who's right? Who's right? Anyway, um, now this is another one that was a couple of quick ones that were in the newsletter. I just want to cover them real quick. So, that, so we were talking about uh, iPad OS, and Mark was saying that there isn't really any significant thing in development specifically for the iOS, like for iPad. There's no, there's no sort of you know uh, major things, and there's no interface builder path or whatever you go down to build stuff for iPad yet. Anyway, but I posted a link here which has a video for for 50 plus uh, iPad OS 13 features that you may. Or may not know about some some of them are interesting um, and they sort of show you how the iPad is different than the I, iPhone or yeah. iOS. Yeah, I, mean, I don't mean to imply that it's exactly the same. I just mean it's no, not. No. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I said, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no specific code path for yet for yeah. us to, the to only, design. The only the only thing that to me is significantly different for a for a developer is is the uh, multitasking with the scene delegate on you know and and yes that exists in the iPhone too but but the way you use it is is a little bit different on the on the iPad. Yeah, well, and multitasking. Is 
existed for, before iPad OS came along, right? So right. as a name, right. yeah, mm-hmm. yes, it did. But but now with the Scene Delegate, you can have multiple versions of the same app. Oh, that's right, multiple windows, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. kind of idea, right? Multiple sure. instances, because I know somebody will be shaking their fist, wanting some clarity on <laughs> mm-hmm. that. So it wouldn't okay. be like version it's... four and version four point one. Oh no, no, yeah, yeah, but it's like multiple documents, right? Or multiple? Let's yeah, say yeah. yeah, it's windows, more like right? multiple documents. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. So so you can it, it looks like if you have an app that doesn't have documents, it kind of looks like you have two copies of your app open at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they do act independently. So if you if you change screens on one of them, it doesn't affect the other one. They're, they are independent. Yeah, and I know this because cause I uh, I had opened my notes pad, notes uh, app on my um, on my iPad Pro uh, a while ago, and I had two side-by-side windows. And so every time I open my notes app, it remembers that I had two open. I don't ever bother closing them, right? Mm-hmm. So but you're right. I can do something on one side and co- refer to the other, and they don't, they don't, they're sort of in, distinct from each other, right? Yeah. And if you go to the app switcher, mm-hmm. you see both of them in there oh, as, yeah. as separate okay. things. Right. Uh, you don't just see one copy of your app. So you can kill one copy of your app, but not the other copy. So your app doesn't mm-hmm. get killed. You just kill that mm-hmm. one screen. So you're not protected. Definitely not doing the app. You're just closing that one screen. Okay, cool. Um, the next two things again from the newsletter were just a quick, couple of quick ones. Is that uh, there's an update to Apple's uh, notarization requirement? This is for Mac OS developers. Starting February third, twenty twenty, all submitted software must meet original notarization prerequisites. And this is, I think, for apps that are not distributed to the Mac App Store. Right? Um, they want to they want to make sure that uh, um, not any, anybody is making um, an app without at least having it signed off. And uh, and of course, there's a link in the, in the link that I've just, I'll put in the show notes, there's a link to find out more about those notarization preferences. Um, we've talked about that before. Um, it's kind of, I kind of got delayed now. It's, now it's out for sure. And another quick hit here is that with uh, respect to web views, you, uh, UI web view has been deprecated for a while. Uh, it's now officially deprecated that um, if you enter, if you submit any new app to the App Store uh, as of April 2020 with a UI web view, they will reject it. And uh, for any updates to apps, you have until December 2020 to um, to uh, get rid of your UI web views and replace them with WK web views or Safari web view controller. Um, yeah, I'm kind of curious about this one because it's been deprecated deprecated for so long yeah it, it kind of forgotten it hadn't gone yeah. away yeah. and i'm really really stretching myself here to think of is there something that ui webview does that is not covered by either wk webview or safari view controller i don't think so but for a long time sort of a a a, a, a almost unacceptably long time in interface builder you could only use a ui webview right yeah yeah i think now you can use a, a wk webview yeah i think about two years ago they added to interface builder. Yeah. It was a bit odd when when you first started using WK WebView a couple of years ago. Like you had almost had to like people couldn't figure out how to get Java support into it or JavaScript support into it. And right. uh, but now it now it seems to be pretty pretty straightforward. I've I've done a few updates and, and it's just a matter of you know changing the class and you have to change some of the The method names are different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah things that go in there and, and it's pretty straightforward to do it now whereas when it first came out it was a little dodgy. But mm-hmm. yeah that's why people avoided it I think too. Um and just a little bit of a bragging rights here that uh, Joe friend of the show, Joe Chapinski, uh, re- responded to Jaime and myself on Twitter that we were, in fact, correct about the fact that he does have a designer wallet, <laughs> and uh, he does carry it in the front pocket, too. So, uh, yeah, he's got he's got a picture of it here with his uh, um, Metro card from the New York subway system, and um, or transit system, whatever they call it. And, um, yeah, the, uh, the uh, nice uh, Waterfield Designs uh, wallet that he uses. Yeah, and this is in reference um, as, as follow-up to the notion of 
you know, is there anything wrong with our Apple cards in terms right. of like Mark and I both have a patina on ours. Yeah. Uh, carry mine in my leather wallet. You know, plain you back know, pocket. Plain, yeah, plain normal blue collar working class kind of wallet mm-hmm. in my back pocket, which you know I, I mentioned here that it's like a it's like an anvil back there. So you know, really? I think the distinct lack of pressure on the card for the front pocket. Doesn't it bug you when you sit down and stuff? No, I no. mean maybe if I sat <laughs> on a very like completely flat surface for a very long time, you know. Uh, yeah, maybe you could cushion the blow as well too. I guess right. So which which pocket do you carry your phone in? The front pocket with with your keys or with your, tra- with your no change? the 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 phone pocket is pretty much just a phone pocket. I might carry really? like headphones on occasion. Maybe I'll have like a Kleenex or something. But in general, it's a phone only pocket. Yep. I yep. Do the same How about thing. you, Mark? Same. Same thing. I carry my keys on my phone in the same pocket. Really? Don't you worry about scratching the screen. No, I I use a screen protector. I have a like one of those glass screen protectors on it. So mm. yeah, I used to, I used to get pretty marked up on when I used to use the the anti glare covers because they were like sort of a vinyl plastic and they used to get marked up from time to time. And you have to switch them out. I actually have a um, vinyl protector on my watch and and it's it's taken a bit of abuse. Um, which I'd rather I'd rather mark up mark up the the uh, screen protector than the actual glass because I've already put a scratch in my watch already. So not happy about that. Anywho, um, yeah. So a couple of things here. Uh, a friend of mine posted a, a, a link to this article on um, on LinkedIn uh, talking about so the, the title is why I quit using observable object in Swift UI and talks about building really complicated or when you get into really complicated apps uh, he find he found that the performance was lacking so I know Mark you were saying you read this one yeah well, I did right? and, and you're exactly right it, he's talking about so the base basically the issue is is when you use observable object or any of the bindings in Swift UI really what makes them nice but in his case is a disadvantage is that uh, it will every time you make an, any kind of update, uh, it will it will render re-render everything. That's that's kind of how it's supposed to work. But uh, if you have thousands and thousands of views, which is what he says uh, he has in his app, uh, then he starts seeing a performance hit. And so he came up with some solutions on on other techniques you can use. He tried to first tried to explore uh, filtering out certain changes and don't so don't update on every change, just only change on certain changes and. Try to try to cut down the thing, and and he comes up with some technique techniques to do it, and you know basically yeah, read the article, but basically he, he decides they're kind of complicated and barely worth it, so he doesn't want to use the scheme at all. But but it but it really is, as far as I can tell, a function of the fact that he's using lots and lots and lots of views, more than most people are going to use. I think it's pretty rare that you have thousands of views in, in this kind of app. Uh, and let's be honest, it's still version one, so there's plenty of room for Apple to improve things. So some of these issues might just go away in the next version. Yeah, so he does talk about a couple of things, but he talks, one thing he talks about at the end here is uh, using a publisher instead of an observable object, which I think Apple did demonstrate that technique at some of the more advanced talks at WWDC this year. But yeah. more, more respect to Combine than, than SwiftUI per se. Right, right? So, so SwiftUI is built on top of Combine, of course. It uses Combine, but it makes its own version of the uh, of the of the publishers and the and the uh, subscribers through the app state and app binding and then the add observable object. So yeah, if you go underneath the hood and don't use the you know SwiftUI convenience methods uh, and use straight combine, then sure you can spin your own, write your own, and, and probably solve any issue that you that you might have. Yeah, and in the middle is a, the funny part is a friend of mine's big up, big up on this uh, Yo 
dog guy. You had to explain to him who, who he was a few months ago, but there's a yo dog. Yo dog, we heard you like Swift UI, so we put an observable object inside an observable object. That's another method that they use there. Yeah. That would be exhibit. So that, so that guy is exhibit, a rapper who the reason that internet meme even came about the yo dog, I heard you like X. So we put X in your X so you can X while you're Xing, right? Right. Um, Um, That is from, uh, pimp my ride from MTV or VH1, kind Uh. of which. Where they oh, yeah, would yeah. do crazy things that, you know, you'd have some beat up car that somebody would bring in and they'd, you know, they'd pimp Put it a hot up. Put in it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like, oh, I heard you like playing, you know, video games. We have like this video game that has like another monitor attached to it. You can play a video game while you're playing a video game. Uh-huh. Right. Stuff. Play a video game in your video game. Yo, dog. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a better example than that, but uh, I haven't seen that show in a long time. And so. you can do that while driving at home if you want to. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Next one is a real quick hit from uh, Myron Totoro again um he uh he was posting about the fact that uh, he didn't know that people didn't know this trick and that is to, to write build script build face scripts inside your xcode and uh, just a quick link to from him to the uh the xcode help page on on doing that kind of stuff so I, I know we use a lot of build scripts in our in our our main app at work um just for automation and and other things you know to help with our, our continuous integration and things like that down the road but um and also to, to work with third-party dependencies i think in fact i think doesn't uh, um, CocoaPod to do some build face scripting. Yeah, sure does. Yeah, oh. yeah. There's there's lots of stuff in Xcode that uh, I think people people don't know and don't take advantage of. What which one is Gen Z? I don't even know anymore. Post millennial for sure. Jaime yeah. is a Gen Z. Gen Z. I think. No, no, not even not even Gen close. Z. Gen Z. You're you're a millennial. So yeah. This is very frustrating because it seems like they keep moving the the bar. So it, for a while, the the generation after X was referred to as Z, right, or, or Z, Z in Canada. Why um, weren't they Y? I have no idea. I I, I was not of the age to, to ask those kind <laughs> of they, questions. They didn't call you and sure. ask you your your opinion, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and then at some point along the way, it was decided that the one after X would be millennial. Um, and when that first came about, I was the tail end of X. Now right. they've decided that I'm the very early beginning of millennial. Mm-hmm. And so now, according to this... Well, Gen Z is 1997 to 2012. Yeah, that's pretty close to this other source, the 96 yeah. to 2010. So right. Okay, yeah. So the the article is basically, was, it was how are you prioritizing your Gen Z? And, and question mark. And, or how are you... Pri- basically, how are you prioritizing your apps or your your, your business or whatever for, for these... these uh, this group of people. Um, App Annie came up with a report. Um, to get the report, you have to sign up with an email, and I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Um, and they'll send out this report to you. But the, the TLDR was basically 90, 98% of these people in this in this group age group have a smartphone. In fact, they were born they were born after the internet, right? So in other words, the internet was already around when they came along, right? So like, you know, I'm, I, I'm old enough to have gone through changing channels by hand and cable TV and then, you know, VHSs and, and Betamaxes and, you know, now I've, you know we're now we're Netflixing and you know and you know Napster and all that kind of stuff all the things that sort of change the way we, we consume data as it were and so now the 98 percent of these people have smartphones so how are you c- catering your apps and your business towards that um, there's currently as of 2019 there's a larger population of Gen Zs than there are Millennials um, just by the numbers right um, and then I looked at some of the top this re- report also gives a lot of other insights but it was interesting I looked at some of this stuff in the US that in certain terms of 
social apps. Uh, Snapchat, TikTok, GroupMe are the big uh, the big apps that are in use by them. Um, of course, different results for different parts of the world. So if you're not from the U.S., check that check the article out for sure. In entertainment, they're using things like iFunny, Twitch, Xbox, and PlayStation. For gaming, they're playing Clash Royale, Clash of Cans, Hexy Jump. Uh, for shopping, they're using Poshmark, Etsy, Wish, which I didn't even know about, and so I went and signed up for Wish to see what it was all about. And offer up Jaime is another big one. Cool, cool, cool. Keep keep saying that so I can get more monies. <laughs> get your get your fat cash, right? right? They need an IPO. Daddy needs a new yacht. The first yacht. <laughs> <laughs> a refurbed yacht. I'm not too greedy. Sure. On the finance side, they're using Venmo and Cash App and Robinhood, which I've never heard of, and Coinbase, which you know I'm using for my uh, thing. And in fact, in Canada, RBC has has an app focusing on students, you know, university students and college students. They've come up with their, with a mobile student edition of their app, right? So it's interesting. Like if you think about it, like the 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 dynamic of this is these people are look are living their life with a phone in their hand, right? Um, so and that's you know, so if you're if you're planning to build apps, apps or whatever or services or, or that's your target that's where you're going to try and get the, the most attention from them and you and look at these other apps that we just rattled off that's the kind of things that are that they're currently using right so hopefully they're getting off tiktok to be honest with you but you know because it sounds like an even another evil den of evil right that scum and villainy yeah so that was covered in the in the email as well yeah it's definitely something to consider right like i think we've known for a, a while now that um teenagers really weren't using facebook right they were using uh, instagram and snapchat um, um, but that was teenagers that we've been talking about for like the beginning of this show, roughly, right? So six years later, the the generation sort of after them is using, as you mentioned, you know, TikTok and Snapchat, and it's probably some other apps that all the all the youngins are into that I don't even know of. And it it changes things for how you're going to deal with marketing and and your resources, I would think, right? So if you're going for uh, like the youngest crowd, you're going to have to have a different approach. You can't just say, oh yeah, well, cool, we'll just peanut butter our marketing spend for for ads through Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It's like, well, is that even hitting your market? If your market is, you know, you're trying to reach people that are the the TikTok generation. I mean, I'm not a scientist here, but I would say that your odds are probably pretty good here to say maybe you should go through the TikTok route if that's where your, yeah, true, your people yeah. are at. And I, I also think for app developers, it also means that you have to think about like, who are you trying to serve when it comes to your particular service? And I'm, I'm going to pick on customer support in this case. So over the holidays, two completely different sort of mental models between me and my mother. So she had an issue uh, that she needed customer service. She made a phone call and she stayed on that phone call for like 45 minutes, I think. Most of which was probably waiting, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas me, I had an issue with um, with Apple in this case and I got it resolved while I was at the airport and I never talked to anybody. I just used the, you know, you know hey, chat. I'd like to right. use the, yeah. Yeah, the business yeah. chat stuff mm-hmm. and I I chatted with somebody and back and forth, back and forth. And I was getting a little nervous. It wouldn't happen before my flight started because then I'd have a few hours of kind of wondering. Mm-hmm. And it got resolved. I never, ever spoke to anybody. I wonder, and, if, and I wonder if there was even a human on the other end or was it a bot? <laughs> hey, not, not at the beginning. It's it's like, hello. Um, here, let me see. I bet I could find it. It should be like right near the top. It's, it says something like, we're going to connect you with somebody. What does it say? Where is well, I've done, it? I've done the same thing with the, those Macs that I've been taking back to the App Store with the battery, you know, the 15-inch battery i start with a chat on on the store and uh you know serial number search first and then pretty much comes back like almost instantaneously and saying well here are the stores in, near you and what what day works for you and and pretty i don't think i talk to anybody it's all done through some sort of ai or smart form right yeah it's it, so to answer this one so this is literally the first beginning of the conversation right so 
I say, you know, my trade has been canceled in error. It has not been 14 days since I received the box. And the Apple chat response is, I'm connecting you to an Apple store specialist. A specialist will be with you shortly. And then, you know, welcome to Apple. My name is Mark. I'd be happy to assist you today with your trade-in, right? And so maybe at that point, it actually becomes a human being, but it's very clearly not at the beginning. But I think the, the, the mental model of, you know, for my mother's generation, it was, uh, I need to call and talk to like a human being for me. I was like, I really don't want to call anybody. I just want to resolve this through the app if possible. Um, and in this case, it was sort of not really through the app, but at least it was still on my phone. And I think, um, I'm not of Gen Z, but given the smartphone usage that you, you told me about Tim, um, I'd be shocked that even though they do have a phone in their hands, I don't think they'll ever want to talk to anybody to resolve these issues. No, exactly. They want to just use asynchronous methods like texting and apps and websites. Yeah, for sure. So it's a consideration for app developers. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's what we're here for. We're trying to guide you guys towards the, the right way to build your apps and target your business. All right. Um, it, it was interesting because there's been a lot of talk on, on AI on, on some of the shows I listen to, uh, Spark, or, or for instance, where they're talking about the fact that you're more likely, as Mark said, you're more likely to talk to uh, an AI than you are a human being these days. Like, I, I don't mean talk. I mean, like interact with um, in customer support. Um, and, you know, there's obviously the one concern on the one side is is who's training those people or how are they being, or the people I'm doing air quotes, who's training those those AIs to, to field your calls and stuff like that. But um, speaking of online services and stuff like that, there was a post here from the uh, from CBC uh, story on how, and I don't know if we, I think, I think we've talked about this before, but um, all the streaming and data that we're all, you know, the data demands we're using, we're using, you know, Disney Plus and Apple TV and Netflix and we're using AWS and, you know, Dropbox and Slack and all these kind of things. Uh, for all this content we're consuming and, and Apple Store, you know, iTunes and Apple Music and Amazon Music and Google Play, um, all of these things are in order to feed all this data to, to the millions and billions of people who are consuming this stuff, there is a certain toll on the amount of energy, like actual electrical energy that has to be generated to to do to serve this stuff up. And, and that, in when you investigate it, it, has a huge carbon footprint. And so the question is, and we, and we know we've talked about this on the show before, and, and I went back and the person who posted this story on, on, it was actually my sister on Facebook, but when I, when I uh, replied to her, I said, you know, I happen to know that Apple is 100% sustainable. Like, they've got their data farms in, in the States that are all, you know, they've got the, the solar panels on the roofs and all of their retail and, and offices are all using sustainable energy. Like, for instance, we I have a subscription called Bullfrog Power that although I'm on the grid and I'm getting my power from, from the hydro company, which is what we call our, our electrical company here, because um, a lot of our stuff is generated by water power from Niagara Falls, with so hydro. Um, but I also pay uh, a, a, a bit on the top to a company called Bullfrog that for all the, you know, the watts of energy that I use, I pay a certain amount of money to them to pay for sustainable uh, energy. So in theory, I'm using green energy, even though technically I'm not, right? So, and I, I'm pretty sure Apple does the same thing. So, and, and in the article, they talk about how Amazon is sort of, you know, making sure that they're for AWS and stuff like that, they're using sustainable energy as well, but they're sort of 50% through uh, getting, getting their cleaned up. But what do you guys have to think of, say about the, the, the carbon footprint or the cost of like the physical cost of uh, delivering this stuff to us, Bueller. <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, 
I think uh, it's always weird to sort of pick on this sort of thing. Like, I'm sure there's, um, you know, some completely frivolous usages of, of data services, right? And, and there is an impact to the environment. But it's a weird one to pick on because it's sort of like, well, you're sort of picking on the wrong area. I mean, yeah. um, anything digital and therefore electric has the capability of being 100% based on renewables. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are issues with like, you know, what are you going to do with when you need access to like coltan and other minerals, like no doubt that there are still issues, but it seems to me altogether different than, well, if you were going to compare, you know, what does it cost to the environment to um, stream something like Apple Music or Spotify Mm -hmm. versus, well, did you really bake in all the costs for that uh, CD that I purchased? Yeah, and deliver it in a truck using gas and put it on a plane. Exactly. Right, right. Like it would be enormous. Like it's not even close. Like I I, I wouldn't have to calculate it. I don't know that that's true. Uh, think about how much how much energy is required to cool all of these yeah. these data centers all around the world. These enormous enormous compute farms everywhere. Think about how much energy is being radiated by the the uh, by the by the radio that's being used to wirelessly send all your videos. Think about mm-hmm. how hot your your phone gets when you watch a video. Right, right. Uh, you're generating tons and tons of heat, and that's going off into the environment and and doing who knows what uh so i i don't think it's that it's so clear cut that it's that that it, that it's uh you know the, that manufacturing is is so much worse than than all this stuff hmm. i don't know i mean I, we'd have to see the numbers i guess but but certainly the cooling costs for cooling a data center over a year uh have got to be much higher than manufacturing some cds true true but it's not it's, so that's the thing though it's not just manufacturing them right it's also uh you know getting the materials to to, to manufacture to that location yeah getting the the, the materials distributed out after they've been products, uh, you know, to like Kmart's, Walmart's, Best Buy's, wherever, and then people driving to them is like, well, at that point, you probably should consider some fractional piece of the automobile that they're using to get there and back, right? There's, and then that's before they've even placed it into their device that connect still uses electricity and generates some amount of heat to, to run. Sure, no doubt, but but you know, so how many? Think about how many CDs does any given person buy? I mean, now numbers close to zero, right? By in mm-hmm. a year. But I think back at the peak, probably most people bought maybe 10 CDs a year, maybe. Right, you know? yeah. That might even be on the high end for most people. Mm-hmm. So, but but a lot of these same people would be downloading multiple movies every single day, yeah. all day. Well, you also had to get in a car and go to the shopping mall to buy the CD, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. But you'd, you do that, you know, that's part of the 10 times a year. Sure, but it's interesting. I did a, a carbon footprint poll, you know, when Greta was around in the U.S. and stuff like that. It's from the BBC, I think. Um, and I went through, you know, of course, you know, like I said, I'm using the bullfrog power, and, and you know, we recycle and we you know, reuse things. We don't throw things out. You know, we responsibly recycle our equipment and stuff like that. And the kind of food we buy is, it's just, you know, relatively sustainable stuff. We buy local and all all those kind of good things. And then I had one flight to WWC, and I blew my carbon footprint out the water because mm. that flight <laughs> was a huge draw on that right so how many times do we fly around you know to conferences and stuff like that that's that's another killer right yeah but true so in the article they say here that the department of natural resources this is a canadian article obviously but department of natural resources say data centers consume one percent of all electricity used in canada at the moment right yeah and demand keeps growing so you can imagine what that's like in the united states or in china or india you know Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's an interesting one you brought up um i think the article mentions like how it's close to the uh aviation industry output 
I'm like, well, that's interesting because that actually should be a net win, right? It should be not perfectly zero sum, but let's take your example of like going to WWDC. I haven't gone to WWDC for years, uh, not necessarily on purpose. There were years I tried to go, but I've been able to just stay here and, and yes, use some electricity, uh, generating some heat from the, the comfort of my own home. How many conferences did you go to last year that you spoke at? So I, I totally blew it on other ones, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that like, uh, you know, Mr. Green here, but it does get interesting that like if we push things towards uh, being online and being digital and we hypothetically reduce the need for people to go around and do some of the things that like, like I did this past year, I think business travel it w- would be like top of mind, right? Like I don't, I don't think people um, should feel super guilty about like, wow, they took that, you know, that trip to Florida or uh, they, they went to, you know, South Korea or something, you know, to go visit their grandma. I think what we really should be looking at is large commercial and maybe even smaller businesses. Like, you know, do we really need to have somebody fly across the state, across the country, across the world, or could we just do this through like zoom you know or slack or something or heck even a google doc sometimes like could could we coordinate in other ways that uh we'd be uh a little bit less hurtful on the environment and then find ways to make that harm even less by having uh renewable resources like you mentioned for uh for apple or um for the data center coolings i I know there's like weird exotic things where they'll uh submerge data centers they'll they'll put data centers in like naturally cold places to sort of reduce the the impact there Mm. another interesting stat from this article here it's uh talk about how much power it takes. Anders Andre, a researcher from Huawei Technologies in Sweden, estimates that uh, the world data centers alone could devour up to 651 terawatt hours of electricity in 2020. And that's nearly as much energy as the Canada's entire energy sector produces. That's a lot of juice. They'll stop using Facebook all the time. Yeah, turn off that phone. <laughs> oh, well, what can you do? All right. Um, There's another quick one here. Uh, another post from uh, the middle week here. Um, iPhone 11 Pro. There's an article here about iPhone 11 Pro's night mode. Apparently, uh, the wide-angle lens, I believe, yes. So when you choose to... So they have this new night mode where, you know, it, it uh, enhances the photo-taking capabilities when you're, when you're in low-light situations. And apparently, when you switch to the wide-angle lens, it actually switches back to the one one times uh, uh, automatically because for some reason in the, in the device it can't actually do uh, a proper amount. It can't capture enough light to do that. So they, they actually do some software uh, fixing up to make it appear like it's uh, being shot in the same night mode. And so there's a couple of examples in the in the post here. And of course, you have to have a pretty critical eye to look at it and see that there is a bit of uh, fudging happening on the image. It's, it gets softened and over-compressed in some places. Um, when you're switching to night mode on your iPhone 11 Pro. I mean, you got something about jailbreaking? Yeah, so Apple has been embroiled in this lawsuit with, uh, what's their name? Corellium. So Corellium is ostensibly a company that sells uh, virtualized access to uh, iOS. So you can, if you're hypothetically a security researcher, you can sign up for this service and try sort of different attacks on iOS. And from Corellium's standpoint, uh, hypothetically, this is helping to... Um, make it easier for people to get access to different handsets and different kinds of um, setups so that, you know, if bugs are found, I think hypothetically they could go towards the Apple bug bounty. On Apple's side, they're saying, wait a minute, we think you're pretty much just taking copies of iOS, running them on on some sort of, you know, virtualized server and then charging access to that. Like, you didn't get a license from us to do that. Stop doing oh, that. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I don't know the truth because I don't have access to Corellium's technology. Um, but this latest article 
from, um, what is it, Ars Technica as Apple using, uh, I think, the DMCA. So in the U.S., that's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act as a um, sort of a takedown tactic to say, wait a minute, we have the copyright for iOS and you didn't get a license from us, so we're going to use that as a legal uh, way to, to bring this down. So, so they're, they're using virtualization, they're not using physical devices is what the issue is, I guess, right? Well, I, I think the issue is not having licenses for iOS. Or for that purpose. I mean, uh, um, unless it's Corellium is going to go the, um, what was the name of that cable TV provider that would like, it was like a sling box type of thing. And they tried getting around it by just having like actual physical cable boxes. Oh, really? Okay. I'll, I'll try finding it um, and, and maybe we'll find out. But uh, unless Corellium has actual physical devices sitting somewhere that this is giving access to, I could see Apple's point of like, you don't have a license to do this. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Corellium is, is sort of fighting back and saying that Apple's uh, demonizing jailbreaking. I think that's just, you know, that's just a red herring. I don't believe that's what well, Apple's It's interesting though. Like if you think about it, like, you know, uh, if you have a developer account, you really only can have a hundred iPhones in your, in your allotment. There's, you know, been stories about people getting exceptions to get more. But so if, if a company, like it, they couldn't have a sustainable business if they only had a hundred, hundred physical devices that they were connected to a developer account per se, right? Unless it's using the developer's account to get around that. But um, yeah, I don't know how they would do that. Hmm. I guess it could be like on a timeshare model, right? So let's pretend yeah. this company doesn't have like, you know, shell companies or subsidiaries that it could then sign up and, and keep creating new ones to create new accounts for a right. developer yeah. account. Um, you know, if you've got 100 devices, I, I don't know how many security researchers there are out there in the world, but do they all need access right here, right now? Or can they just like a timeshare buy a little bit of like, yeah, I want like an hour on Wednesday. All right, my attack didn't work. Let me go research what else I could do. And then I'll come back mm. three days from now when I have a new idea, right? It, it, like I, I could see where 100 devices could go reasonably far, at least when you're starting out. So what's the, what's the, uh, what's the, the business model for these guys? What, what service are they offering? Brilliant. I, I think their, their selling point is that if you're a security researcher, you get um, oh, access virtualized to access to uh, iOS that you can uh, then try to attack, right? As you're trying to figure out, you know, um, is there some sort of security defect that I can then get a bug bounty for? Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So I don't, I, I don't know. It, 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 I'm not a lawyer. It smells a little weird to me. Um, I really wish that uh, Corellium um, could work with Apple on this because I think it's a yeah. useful service. Yeah. It's not for me. I'm not into that sort of thing. But I think having you know, greater and broader access for people to to try to um, do things on the up and up, try to find the warts and flaws in iOS, and mm-hmm. then you know getting paid by Apple for like, hey, look, I found this bug. Please, please give me money for the reward. I think that's better for everybody if, if it's more open. Um, this, I don't know. It, it doesn't smell right. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Hmm. Do you have something here about Starbucks, Jaime? Yeah, this is uh, this is the right time of year. The uh, the year of uh, or the era the notion of New Year's resolutions. And I think one resolution to have is uh, go take a look and see. Uh, do you have any of your API keys hanging out in any of your GitHub repos? Much less mm. you know public repos. So apparently Starbucks, unfortunately, left an, an API key in one of its uh, public repos on GitHub that allowed access to the uh, Jump Cloud API, which is apparently an Active Directory management platform, uh, very similar to Azure Active Directory. Um, and that's a that's a bummer. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to miss that sort of stuff. Uh, I think there are different techniques you can use to sort of mitigate some of the, the possibilities that's happening. I'm definitely a big fan of, you know, smaller code reviews. Um, code reviews at all <laughs> would be good, right? 
to make sure that uh, and, and before you have like initial uh, repos being created, it's kind of good to pair program with somebody and, and double check to see what exactly are we checking into the repository. And for this sort of thing, there are um, services that you could use that you would not have to even check in an API key. Like there's uh, HashiCorp's Vault service that is really good, from my understanding. I haven't used it myself. Uh, Vault is really good at handling, um, maintaining secrecy of uh, stuff that you would want to encrypt and have totally protected. So cool. it's, it's, so it's a bummer sort of that like it happened here. Online repository? Vault is an online repository for storing like keys and things like that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it can handle um, arbitrary key value store. My understanding of how people tend to use it is, um, let's say you have some sort of um, uh, web service that you've created, right? As an example. Um, and your service is like, cool, I, I need to uh, do something to um, like Amazon S3, right? Like I need to create a new bucket for people to put photos into and it won't have access to do that. So it has to ask Vault, Vault, can I have credentials to do that? And Vault can do things like say, cool, um, Vault knows how to access something like Amazon's Identity Access Manager, IAM, create credentials that are role specific and time limited to say, cool, web service, you have have these credentials now to to access uh, like let's say like API keys right to, to access this resource and you better use it up in the next 20 minutes because after that your resource access is going to get revoked right so there's a lot of um, operationalized ways of keeping secrets from getting out into the environment like HashiCorp would be sort of like a pretty high-end sort of way of, of dealing with it right like it's like the luxury premium option in this case for you know normal sort of developer stuff um, um, I don't know the situation here, but it's generally a good practice to have your um, API keys come from some other secure source. Like, for example, you um, normally don't want to have, for web services, it's a little harder for, for apps. Um, you don't want to have your, your API keys, like, baked into your code. Like, in this case, in the in the GitHub public repo, it probably comes from, like, an environment variable when you're running the web service. And then you can control the environment variable through, like, keychain or something. Um, the, the, the key thing here is not having your API keys, your your secrets baked into your source code repository, and, and especially not when it's a public one. Yeah, that, that's surprising right. to me that, that somebody would do that. I mean, I'm all for open source and all that kind of stuff, but don't put your secret stuff in public. Wow. It's super easy to do. Like if you've, and this is why I'm a, a big fan of doing like, you know, code reviews and, and having good practices of like, keep them, keep them small. Like if somebody can review your code in the time it takes them to drink a cup of coffee, that's great. If you're sitting there looking at, you know, 3000 lines that somebody shoved in on the Friday before the holiday, like, are you really going to look at it that closely? Eh, probably not. And I could see that sort of situation resulting in this sort of thing of like, yeah, whatever, man, I just want to get to the Christmas party you know, sure, you know, approved. And then whoops, it turns out that it had something in there that somebody could have caught in addition to, you know, not following some of the other practices I talked about. Yeah. See, I guess this is a difference between a boomer and a millennial and a, and a Gen Z person, but I'm all in favor of private repos. I don't, I have very little out in public, you know, especially not customer work and stuff like that. It's crazy, you know, or, or business like stuff that's your, your business, right? It's different. And I'm not going to say that, uh, that open works for every case. Um, 
but I'm definitely a proponent of doing as much in, in the open as possible. Um, I think practically what that's going to mean for most people is doing stuff out in the open that honestly isn't the main part of your business. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, get, get the community to help with the commodity type work um, and keep the, uh, the, the secret sauce hidden behind, you know, the firewall, so to speak, like in the, the private repos, like you mentioned. I don't, I don't think it's an either or, you know, um, I mean, just look how much like open source stuff that we've, we've talked about in this show, or uh, even the tools that we're using are, are, you know, very heavily based on open source stuff, mm. but a lot of closed source stuff, um, you know, sprinkled on top. Right, right. Hmm. All right. Well, just be aware of what you're doing. Be pay attention, kids. All right. <laughs> uh, another post here I have here is, uh, um, we were talking about this at work the other day and, and about the differences between um, how Swift handles dynamic dispatch or dispatch in general um, compared to other languages. And, and uh, this led uh, led me to this post here that I've got in the show notes, uh, understanding method dispatch in Swift. I think, Mark, you said you had a look at this. It starts out explaining how uh, you know generally object-oriented uh, design works um, with, you know, uh, and then and with um, polymorphism and, and uh, being able to class, have classes and subclass things and uh, how and has a quick dem- demonstration on dynamic dispatch here um, using an, an, an analogy of animals like dogs and cats and they making making noise as a method um, and how that gets dynamic d- dispatched through like V tables or virtual tables um, anyway, and pretty much summed it up right there. <laughs> so, so it, it goes into some detail about how it all works where if, and the performance trade-offs where if you have static dispatch, which is you explicitly send a message uh, to a, let's say a class of a, of a well-defined type at compile time defined type. Uh, and it's, you know, it's marked as final, so it can't subclass or anything. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it is that type. Uh, then, then it can sort of hard freeze that type into your compiled code and it can just dispatch the message without any kind of looking anything up. So it's very fast. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have, say you want to dispatch the same message, which is basically call a method on, as the example they gave, an array of subclasses of something that are different subclasses of that of all the same thing uh so you know so it's 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 an array of the superclass as it's defined uh well then it has to go and look up the particular type of the subclass for each of them and to know exactly how to send the message because you might have overridden the method in the subclass so it can't just send it to the to the superclasses definition of the of the method so so that's a very powerful technique uh but it's going to slow your your code down a little bit. So so he goes into the details of how that all works and how it works with protocols as well, which is a very similar kind of issue because if, if you can, you can dispatch to things that all conform to a protocol and the only contract is that it that it implements this method that you're dispatching to, uh, but you, it has to go and look up and find the particular type so it knows precisely which implementation it uh, it should run because it will be potentially be different for all the objects that conform to the to the protocol. So it's a it's a good article. It's it's you know, it's uh, it's it's kind of a little bit under the hood and nuts and bolts, but uh, but it's good to read one of those every once in a while. I think the the main thing, because I haven't read through this, is the poll quote of uh, it's very important to note that using protocol types is a relatively expensive operation, especially while using large values as protocol types, since this invokes heap allocation and reference counting. Um, I think with a lot of this sort of advice, it's definitely good to consider context. Um, my guess is a lot of these performance trade-offs would make a lot more sense if you're in an environment that has to deal with like real-time processing or uh, very heavy computational processing, like, you know, 3D rendering games, that sort of thing. But for your typical, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill table view, collection view based app, probably doesn't make that big of a difference. However, that's not 
to say you should go crazy and just like protocol all the things. Because <laughs> um, if even if it, if you're like, ah, oh, like I've, I've, this is Bill Gates money, like I can I can spend all the dollar bills I want. Like, sure, uh, maybe you could hypothetically do that because you're not going to feel the impact computationally. But um, I think just for developer sanity, you can you can overdo it, right? So I think uh, it's really cool to to sort of see some of the facts and data around this, understand uh, what's happening and what is possible, and then sort of using your best judgment going forward with it and not sort of um, adhering to it as like uh, dogma, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a good little, like Mark said, it's a good uh, quick little read, nine minutes, I think it says on the on the 10, um, to go through and see so how those different things work. The next post I got here is based on an infographic, and um, a friend of mine who posted this on, on Twitter had made a comment that um, the, the story is basically how tech giants make their billions, and it's a bunch of infographics on the revenues of the various companies, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, or Google, uh, Microsoft, and Facebook. And the difference he pointed out was that um, where Apple is providing you with services and, and things, um, uh, the, you're not the product. In the case of uh, the other um, companies who make their monies, they're making them from from that kind of thing. Like Amazon, for instance, makes uh, a lot of money on their stores and to uh, Amazon Web Services, but um, they're more interested in selling you things. Alpha, or Google is all about search and searching uh, search optimization and YouTube. That's where they make the majority of their monies and so forth and so forth. So but it's interesting because we've talked about this in the past um, where the breakdowns are. Uh, like, for instance, here they've got $265 uh, billion uh, is what Apple's um, are bringing in. And they're saying that, um, you know, uh, 62, 62.8% of that is, is in iPhone sales alone. Um, uh, interesting number, 14% is is uh, services, which has grown to be bigger than um, the iPad and Mac uh, business almost together. Uh, iPad being smaller than Mac, but not by much. And then the other things like AirPods Pro and, and the watches and things like that, making up uh, the last 6% of, of that. And somebody pointed out that that uh, um, just the AirPod business alone is enough to be um, is to be uh, a, like a, a Fortune 500 company in terms of like the, the revenue it brings in. Um, Amazon, on the other hand, you know, the majority of their money is made through stores, through selling you things, uh, 52% in that case. Uh, Google is making 70% of their profits. They're $136 billion um, through YouTube and Google, uh, Google Maps and Google um, Gmail and, and what do they call their, their office thing. Um, Microsoft is, you know, um, making more money on Azure these days and, and the Office uh, suite than they are on Windows. Um, but then they've got another bunch of services. LinkedIn, which they bought, uh, is only like 4% of their business. Their search engine is only 6% of their business and gaming, of course, with their Xbox stuff. But Facebook is the interesting one because Facebook, with their $58, $55 billion, which is like, you know, a paltry sum compared to what Apple's bringing in. But are you sitting down? 98% of Facebook's money is made selling you selling ads. So. But you knew that. Huh? You, you knew that, or you should have known that. Oh, yeah. Well, if you, if yeah. you, if you use Facebook, you are, you are, all you are doing are make, is making Mark Zuckerberg Somebody money. money. Yeah. It's an interesting infographic. I think well, the water has gotten a little bit muddier for Apple as they've grown into the services side, but I swear at some point in the history of the show, I remember talking about the, the sort of polar opposites of Facebook and Apple's revenue model of like one is everything is totally free and we need a ton of users, continuously growing users, and we make it off of advertising and Apple's on the opposite side is like, we don't need that many users. They will pay us a boatload of money for each of these new devices. It's a very straightforward relationship. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned Amazon and uh, Microsoft as being sort of in the middle, right? Maybe one leaning towards the other side and the other of like Amazon, as far as I know, doesn't really have any serious advertising um, aspect beyond what happens on 
like the third party stuff that shows on amazon.com. Uh, but for the most part is like kind of just wants to sell you stuff and continue selling you stuff directly. Uh, not so much selling information about you, uh, such as in Google's or Facebook's case. And Microsoft was, was also very similar. Uh, and then, and, and their model has gotten a little bit muddier where it used to be like, Hey, go buy a copy of windows. Cool. You should also buy office. And now it's more towards the, the Azure web services side of like, yeah, we sure would like you to be continuously signed into office 365 and use this other stuff. And then of course the LinkedIn purchase makes that a little bit less straightforward. So it's definitely not as clear cut, uh, except for <laughs> Facebooking. I don't know why Google's is broken out this way. When you add it up of advertising, it is um, 84, 85% of Google's or Alphabet's revenue is based on advertising. So that's quite a bit difference, you know, the 98.5 for Facebook, but it's, you know, it's right, right in yeah. the same magnitude. Yeah, but like according to this this infographic, uh, Facebook is not raking in the same amount of money. Interesting sidebar though is the is the, they they mentioned the Apple Card. Um, you know, Apple's recently announced an aggressive move into financial services market. What's interesting for me about that is that I know every time I use my Visa card or a Mastercard, that information of what I purchased, where I purchased it, you know, my age, my gender, all that kind of stuff is going to somebody to use as as a metric or a metadata for other things like what what products to make, what products to sell, what what kind of advertising to hit me with, or what advertising works, in fact, right? Whereas in the case of Apple's offering, I'm and I'm guessing because we don't even have an Apple card outside the US, but I mean, I would think that Apple is protecting your privacy when you buy things, right? Is that not correct that they're, they're not selling this information off to third parties, you know, based on what you're buying and that kind of stuff? Like, is that not part of the guarantee? And of course, no no fees for the card as well, right? There's no fees for the card. Well, there's, there's a interest if you carry a balance, if you run, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but otherwise, there's no fees. Um, you know, I'd have to read the terms of service closely, uh, but one thing they for sure guarantee is they're not telling the vendor, you're, they're not giving the vendor your information, but I'm, I don't know whether they're giving it to outside people or if Goldman Sachs even has access That's to close, it. Yeah, yeah. That I don't know. That's a good question. But I have to admit, I didn't really worry about it when I got the card, which maybe I didn't <laughs> yeah. it's shiny and has an apple on it, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, the other part for me was again similar to Mark saying no guarantees. But my thought was, you know, what does Apple do as a company, and what sort of trust level do I have? And I have a trust level that, yeah, you know, somebody like a Goldman Sachs is an eight hundred pound gorilla, and it's got a lot of weight in carry. But I also have great faith that Apple is like an eighty thousand pound gorilla that can smack the crap out of any provider that does anything wrong. Yeah, right. So there's yeah, a huge sure. incentive to keep them aligned, if only out of fear. Right, not out of love, but out of fear of will we lose this sweet money from Apple? Yeah, I wonder if so Apple I, Pay is the same deal. Like you know, I use Apple Pay all the time now, right? And and I know that the the purchases go back to my bank at the end of the day. I guess so. I guess they could be sharing information back to to the you know the marketers over the world. But like you know, because the transaction goes through Apple, doesn't it? Like the you know because Apple's created a token on my watch, and and uh, that's how they're communicating to the to the vendor or the credit card companies that I'm buying something with the device, right? Right. I, I wonder. I guess it gets a bit muddy with uh, coming back to the bank, right? But I wonder what the contracts are. I mean, I don't know what they are, um, you know, between Apple and, and the, the credit card companies, right? Like that could be, I mean, you know, I mean, is is it pervasive yet in the States? Like, or is it Apple Care, Apple, sorry, Apple Pay everywhere or is it still working on it? Around here, you get it. Uh, you see it pretty much every, pretty much everywhere. Not everywhere, but pretty much everywhere. But I was in, I think I mentioned I was in uh, Denver a couple of months back and most people had never heard 
heard of it. I was kind of surprised really? by that. Yeah. Apple Pay. Yeah. Huh. I mean, if you went into the big stores, you know, the big chain stores, yeah, they, they knew about it, but just local places I had never heard of it. Well, like I know we've, we've mentioned this before, like in, in, in Toronto area, we have like a, sm- a small mom and pop shops often won't take tap to pay. That's how we, we use our near field communication to do our tap to pay here, which Apple piggy, Apple Pay piggybacks on top of. Um, so a lot of times you go in and you, and you have to pull your card out like an animal and, you know, almost do the chink chink thing that Jaime was talking about. <laughs> you know, the, the credit card swipe, right? That'd be a blast because there's nothing other than your damn name on the yeah, front of the, the card. Yeah. Well, the number's on there, too. The number's on there. There's no physical numbers on the... Oh, on the card. Oh, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, said, yeah, you mentioned that you just have your name on there and, and no CVC, CV, what do you call it? CVV number on the back? Right. Yeah. yeah so this it's, is interesting. interesting. So, I'm re- so I'm reading something from Apple's initial, original press release when the Apple card launched. Yeah. And this is what it says. The unique security and privacy architecture created for Apple Card means Apple does not know where a customer shopped, what they bought, or how much they paid. Great. Apple is partnering with Goldman Sachs as its issuing bank. Goldman Sachs will never share or sell data to third parties for marketing and advertising. Right. Now, are they saying that Goldman Sachs does know what we bought and how much we paid, and they've just promised not to sell the data to third party? Hmm. I think they'd have to as the issuing bank. I don't think you could hide it from them. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Apple itself seems to be like, dude, we have no idea what you bought. We just know that we got asked for. Yeah. Is this person good for this amount of money? We're like, absolutely approve this. And here's the, the token you need. Right. But somebody's got to be able to stitch it together. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where right. Cause, the, yeah, because they have to make the payment to the vendor somehow. Mm-hmm. Right. So they have to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I suppose I suppose it's possible that that Apple just that the system could be architected where the transaction happens and Apple just says to Goldman Sachs, hey, pay, you know, pay ten dollars to Chipotle because somebody just bought something and they don't tell Goldman Sachs who it was or what they bought. Hmm. But then how would you track down if there's any issues and, and fraud and all that? I guess you really couldn't very easily. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's where I came to this. Somebody's got to know. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's Goldman Sachs is the issuing bank. And that was the, yeah. I trust Apple to have selected a good partner and to lawyer up the hell out of them and beat the hell out of them if they act even slightly out of line. Yeah. Of well, <laughs> I don't know if you, if you know much of the history of uh, financial institutions in the U.S., I don't know that Goldman Sachs is the one you would trust most highly, but that's my opinion. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there is that, but I think the big reason that Goldman Sachs decided to to make this um, pledge is they've historically not been in the consumer market when it comes to, to banking. And this, true. Uh, via Apple, gave them a, a foothold in doing that. Yeah, yeah. So, so hopefully Apple has uh, lawyered up enough to protect um, us, you know, on, on our behalf. Yeah. But, but I don't hopefully. know that. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know, as a, as a fact, and it's totally dependent on um, the people who run Apple continuing to run it this way. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the picks portion of our show. So I have two picks. Hami, you have one pick. Do you want to do them in the order listed here, or do you want to do yours first and then mine next, or what? Let's just do them in uh, the order you've got there. All right. So I, I posted this in the newsletter as well, but uh, I'll go over it again. So I'm always interested in this kind of this kind of metric stuff, and and uh, what this is is Sorcerer.io, and again. Uh, yeah. So a friend of the show, Fouad, had uh, posted this in, in one of the slacks I was saw and uh, as an interesting idea. As sorcerer.io, what it does is you you link up your you run a tool on your on your command line on your on your Mac, um, you download the software from them, from their GitHub, and um, you run it on your, your uh, commit statements in your repos, and you can pile in as many repos as you like uh, into this thing. I think I've got something like 16 repos in here just for science. Um, 18 repos, actually. Uh, and uh, it gives it a nice little infographic 
specific here in terms of the number of commits you've you've done. And I mean, just interesting note here is that around 2016 or 2017, I went into a corporate environment where I can't share my code. But so this is all the code off of my Mac that my main my main development machine. Um, and so so there's a big pile there between 2014 and 2016. Um, most active in 2014, I think, uh, of code that I committed. Uh, break it down into languages. For uh, one interesting thing about the languages, though, you can you can edit the languages that appear on the on this this sheet. Of course, the idea behind this is you post your your stats so you you can show to prospective employers what your skill set is, right? And based on the actual number of commits you've made uh, over the years. And um, so uh, what's interesting about the languages is was one called, came up come uh, Wolfram Alpha, which I don't know why it came up with that, but that was a big chunk uh, for mine. So I actually edited that out of this chart so you don't see it. But um, that was a language. Yeah, it, I, I, I know. I don't. I have no idea why it said Wolfram Alpha. This, yeah. I, maybe something weird in their in their algorithm mm. but mm-hmm. um 50 57% of my commits are obviously objective c uh, maybe not obviously 27% are c you know it shows my swift usage in there my CS, css and my http uh, php and my html as well um and shows you know the number of commits i've made and and how often i've done it uh, it shows some of the third party technologies i use jquery less i don't even know what less is so i don't know how that how that got in there um uh, but af networking is in a bunch of my apps um fun facts it shows that you know i'm i'm most productive in the evenings, which is when, when I do most of my personal coding anyway, and I'm most productive on Sunday. Um, it, interesting point of fact, though, is I think I've only been using Git for about uh, eight years. So um, even though it says here, it says objective, I've been an Objective-C developer for eight years, PHP for seven, which is not true. I've been since 1999, uh, CSS for four, Swift for three years. That's an odd one. Um, uh, I'm a, apparently, I'm a top uh, Swift developer, which I, I dispute heartily because um, I, I guess out of the people who are who have uh, put their information in here and, and, and now um, uh, I prefer tabs and I use camel case which I think is funny I'm, I'm 13% of the users use tabs so I guess the tab people are losing losing the war um, and then you know you can go through each of the repos that they're listed they're, they're all anonymized of course you can make your your uh, profile private if you will I will I'll leave it public for a couple of weeks for you guys to have a look at this but uh, interesting sort of uh, way to break down you know so you can sort of see for yourself what you actually are active most active in based on your uh, your commits. So does it use local repos as well or just uh, just stuff on Well, you GitHub see how it says LLC. All of these are my local repos because I don't, like I said before, I don't have much. I, all of my all of my um, Bitbucket and GitHub stuff is all private. Uh, there's very, very few uh, of my stuff is, is in public. So these are all uh, private repos on my machine. Oh, well, we can't see it though because when we click the link, it says this profile is private. Oh, you can't? Oh, maybe I made it private. Let me, let me unprivate it. How do I do that? It, sh- it should be viewable now yep i hit refresh and it immediately yeah. popped up i don't know how to get out of this thing and it's interesting you can actually see it change live as you as you're going through your repos yes yeah, so wow, so we're using swift for a lot in 2014 and then it dropped off for a while there yeah where do you see that one in the, the, see, the there's first graph? orange in the first peak and then there's orange at the end and nothing in between swift oh you're oh, you must have show you different colors oh maybe oh yeah, yeah yeah i see what you're saying yeah like i was saying all that all that stuff 2019 all those those months there like that's all I'd be doing work at work. I didn't do a lot of coding back then. Yeah, I think I, I think you know getting stuff ready for um, Xcode 11. I did a, I did a update recently. Most of my work is in Objective C still, unfortunately. So I don't see any Wolfram Alpha here. No, I, I hit added it. Oh, 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 oh. put it back okay. in. You can choose. Uh, You're a top got, C developer. I know that's surprising. Said so how about that? Yeah, I, I mean I guess that's out of all the people here, but I, I think mm-hmm. the C just comes from Cocos 2D and from from uh, iOS, right? Because I wouldn't call myself a C developer at all. <laughs> Well, C++ 
is probably included. Mm. I mean, sorry, Objective-C. Sorry. Yeah, they call it ob- Object-C here in their little graphic, right? <laughs> I'm a top Swift developer. Like I said, I, I hardly dispute that one. Based on number of commit. Yeah, based on number of commit. Based on discovered commit. Well, that's different. I'm a top PHP developer, too. That's another thing I would dispute. Looks like sign-in options are login with GitHub, GitLab, or you can create a username and password. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, I still, uh, I still, um, and you can share your link on LinkedIn or whatever for your profile. But that's me. Most productive during evenings. Yeah. Sunday evenings, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I can't imagine Wednesday would be very popular for coding because I'm usually on this show, right? I don't, I don't know if I have Xcode open. I'm not working in Xcode while we do the podcast. Not like Mark. <laughs> I'm not working in Xcode. I, I have before, but I, I'm not yes, right I now. <laughs> not right now. Yeah. Look at that. 65, 650,000 lines of code. I'd never would have figured that. That's probably probably not a lot compared to other people. That's kind of funny how it stacks all the 2014, 2018, all into one lump there, right? And 2019 is the last uh, four sections. I guess it's trying to give you like a trailing look, you know, sort aggregated outside of the current year yeah oh i see whereas right. the current whereas the current year is broken up to sort of see like mm-hmm. how am i doing seasonally right well yeah because it's like december october september we're having november i tried to i tried to load some more swift program I, I think maybe the thing is that you write less code in swift <laughs> <laughs> that's the ticket <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right so on to your uh your cheat sheet honey yeah from the the ray wenderlich crew i think this was also in the newsletter if you haven't if you haven't signed up all the cool kids are doing it um, a Swift 5.1 cheat sheet and quick reference. So they say cheat sheet, but really it's like four sheets if you printed them out. Mm. But they're pretty easy to print out, have available on your wall. I like this sort of stuff because it's really easy to forget something basic. And then sometimes this stuff is a little bit difficult to Google, How, you know, or even if you look at the Swift documentation and be like, what is this thing called? And somebody else has uh, done some of that help for you, right? And you're like, I am looking for the initializer stuff. What is that? Oh, designated and convenience initializers. That's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I know not everybody is, uh, you know, up to speed with Swift. Perfectly okay. I think these sorts of resources are great for folks who are beginning. And also just as a reminder to have folks who, who are experienced, we're like, yeah, you know, I just don't happen to use this construct that often. Kind of depends on what you do at work. Right. Yeah. Having all the syntax for uh, like the other different flavors of if case let all in one place is kind of a nice thing. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. The, the if case let stuff is something I never really remember. Mm-hmm that format the the case part yep. is a little non-obvious yeah that's pretty cool right and then uh, the last one of course is we talked about this one before so i've got the safe for work version of it um this is gosh darn swift ui and i guess the folks over at gosh darn i'm not sure if it's the same bunch of people who do the other gosh darn swift and gosh darn uh objective c but um maybe it is maybe it isn't i don't know uh soren unpronounceable last name um basically put this uh, list together uh, this is uh, sort of some of the things that you can do in swift ui similar idea i guess your your uh, cheat sheet there but all the sort of how you would convert from say ui kit to swift ui um you know what what the equivalents are and i think this is a, a, a live document so because i think it's grown over time that i've since i first looked at it um and so it shows you how to you know how to control the, the look and feel of things in swift ui text fields secure fields images nav stacks date pickers you know uh steppers v stack z stacks or z stacks if you're in canada uh lists you know things like that scroll views and on and on 
it's good that it's kept up to date because it was a wild season from launch at WWDC to actual 1.0 of a Swift UI come September. So a lot of those changes were, were pretty drastic for naming and how things worked out. So pretty nice to see somebody have it all sort of collated here. Yeah, some of the advanced things like how to how to bring a Facebook or first right how to bring a framework into into uh, Swift UI and UI Kit. Interesting thing at the bottom there. And view, uh, UI View Controller representable. Yeah, cool stuff. I've been using a lot of UI View representable lately. Have you? Yeah. Purposely chose not to use the View Controller representable because I wanted to get into the mode of not having any View Controllers. Oh really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Kind of interesting. It's it's kind of magical the way it works. Yeah. If you think about it, there's the whole idea of Swift UI is that everything is a disposable value type immutable struct sort of you know if you ignore the mutability caused by the binding variables but forget about that so 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 you have a so you have a, a, a struct uh, that has a sort of the equivalent of a subview that you'd like it to be a class right that that's a mutable class mm-hmm. that is a reference type that is not going to get thrown away when this thing gets refreshed right the struct the, the level above gets thrown away and it creates a new one every time there's a change in the state variable, right? And it creates a new struct. But yet there's class that is, quote, a subview. Don't complain that I'm saying subview. I know it's not. Uh, but but a, a child view, let's call it that. But right. that this thing is a class. It's a UI kit class. So how does that all work? How do you have a parent view, which is a immutable struct, have a mutable, uh, indestructible, child, yeah. quote, child class? So there's some there's some magic they did with this make UI view and make, make update UI view and make coordinator stuff where you where where you it calls this make UI view once the first time you render and that's where you can create your UI kit class and every time it refreshes Swift UI will remember where that class is and give you it in the update UI view it'll it'll call update UI view with that same object for that is mm. your view and then you can do stuff to it even though even though the parent got thrown away and all the other sibling views you know child children views all got thrown away and got regenerated the objects are gone or the structure gone, this one still is able to grab your existing one and pull it in and use it. And somehow it knows where that one is. I mean, it's the same kind of, you know, stuff that's going on with binding variables, but it seems a little bit magical, but it's cool. It works. Hmm. And the coordinator, the coordinator is this helper object that you can create and you can use that for, uh, for example, for uh, having a, a delegate that this thing might call out to, because there are no really delegates in SwiftUI. It doesn't make sense. You, know, you can't have a delegate back to, uh, just think of the, the mechanism of uh, if you were to try to have the parent view be a, a, a delegate of the child view, let's say, well, just the fact, because everything's value type, just by passing self into the child and assigning it to the delegate, you make a new copy of the parent. So that delegate would never call back to the same one that you started with. It would call back to a copy of it, right? Because it's all value typed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so delegates don't make much sense in SwiftUI, but if you're using UIKit stuff, well, you kind of need delegates. So you use this magic of the coordinator, which gives you a class that is a reference type thing that uh, that you can use as your delegate. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you see that they link back to the Apple tutorials too. I wonder if have, they, have those been kept up to date? I wonder. I went through those when WWDC first was a new th- a thing. Oh, there's also link, links back to the documentation on each one of these things as well. Cool. Yep. There you go. Gosh darn Swift UI. Mm-hmm. That's our pick. All right. Got my uh, my, my last pick there. Oh, the, you got uh, pick? The non, oh. non-newsletter pick the page, is the page every, time zone, yeah. every time zone. Yeah. Every time zone.com. Oh, yeah. Which 
apparently you can sign up for, but I didn't because what they show by default, the non-signed-in view, is a whole bunch of time zones. Wow. So if you're having to work with folks in, you know, the vast, far-flung corners of the earth, uh, this can do that. I, I'm assuming when you sign in, you can probably customize which ones you have, but it's got pretty useful ones. <laughs> so all the U.S. time zones, uh, Brazil, United Kingdom, Germany, Russia, United Arab Emirates, India, Singapore, China, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand represented. So hmm. if even just looking at this, I'm like, if I had to guess what some other country, just like a U.S. time zone, just pick which time zone are they likely closer to. So if you said, well, what if I need to work with somebody in Zurich, Switzerland? It's like, well, I bet you they're closer to Berlin than they are to London. I'm bad at geography. I don't even have to Google search that, but yeah, it's probably what? So right now it is 8.09 p.m. on uh, January 8th when we record this, but it is 5.09 a.m. on January 9th in Berlin and therefore in Zurich. As wow. 14 well, the delay is pretty bad. Yeah, it's 8.14 for me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, that was when I loaded the page. Okay. <laughs> Way to go, guys. Nobody had to do that. <laughs> I have no clue when this Seattle is made. has its own time zone. All right. Five minutes so, so is your is your uh, time zone in green, lime green on your page? Yeah, and here so now is it is the top 15. one because I see Pacific as a to- as the top uh, as a center of the universe. It's the top top line. Yeah, and I'm yeah, the fourth one down. Yeah, yeah, I'm the fourth one down. So the green, my green one sticks out like a sore thumb. But I can see that I can see that it's eight fourteen for Mark actually. Or actually, it hasn't updated. Let me refresh. Yeah, and then you can you can drag along. You can see what time if you're like, well, you know, I wanted to do oh, like a two p.m. meeting uh, tomorrow for me. When would that be? is like oh that's not really super convenient for some folks around the world yeah it's neat how it makes the uh makes the 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 when it's nighttime it goes black you know or end of day i guess midnight yeah at midnight. Yeah, it does seem to have a notion of like core hours yeah. you, you'll notice the i'm gonna get this wrong on color the hue seems a little bit more intense mm-hmm. from eight to six looks like yeah dragging along eight to six yeah i'm seeing you guys a sort of teal blue color mm-hmm. and i'm i'm green and then it, like if i if i pull the scrubber so it goes past midnight my january 8th goes black the shades of gray right or it becomes desaturated it's just it's it's only highlighting the color for all the time zones that are now in any yeah, yeah, in yeah. any time zone yeah. right it's, day, it's well, got nothing to do with working. time of day no if you if you grab that little thing that says 514 or sorry 815 at the top and you can slide yeah. it right uh-huh. yeah yeah so if you look at you look at me right now um for me yeah. it's like it's 7 11 17 p.m right but as you drag into the next day right the the, the blue color in your case would would pop over to the right because that's the current yeah. that's the current uh current time day day oh yeah oh i see yeah so it's it's uh it's okay i got you it's a full day yeah cool. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's what i had to yeah. do with when the sun went to bed oh, well. yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a different that's a different website i guess what does that tell you when it's time to go to bed yeah no I, there's yeah. actually a, there's a watch face where you can actually see the the number of daylight hours and right now it's like a very small pie wedge because mm. the days are getting longer but they're still pretty short compared to the rest of the time right yeah. most of the time it's dark out this time of year unless you're in the southern hemisphere in which case is the opposite so i guess that's it for another week so hey mark if people want to get in touch with you how would they do that mark r at smapsoft.com and how many people want to get in touch with you i'm on twitter as at dev with the hair all right my name is timitra t-i-m-m-i-t-r-a on the twitter machine is where you'll find me and so until next time we'll say bye-bye bye 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 This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is friend of the show, Mike Finockmans. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. 
There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I was chatting with, a, with a, one of the email lists that uh, goes around um, his name. Uh, he uh, He's decided he's going to take some time off and not do his weekly list, one of the Swift uh, lists that I've been following. Um, and he, uh, so I sort of said, well, you know, a lot of work doing this every week. I, I can appreciate where you're coming from. And he's like, yeah, I'm a listener of the show and fan of you guys. So that was kind of cool. It does seem, so I'm subscribed to a whole bunch of newsletters. It does seem like a common theme uh, for December or January has been folks talking about taking a break or yeah. reevaluating. Yeah, for the year. Mm-hmm. I've got uh, another uh, HomePod, hey, Mark? So you have two now? I have one currently. I'm waiting for the second one to come through U.S. Oh, customs. Excellent. Yeah. So, so I, I was a little confused. How come you couldn't buy directly from Best Buy? Did they not offer the price in Canada? No, Best Buy Canada and BestBuy.com are different sites, uh, right? So the one I bought was an open box one. And it ended up being like $10 more Canadian than the, mm-hmm. one, the one you guys were being offered, which is why I jumped on it. It was like $100 off, it's $100 off, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but it came from Vancouver and it took mm-hmm. like a, like it came on the slowest truck from mm-hmm. Vancouver it could mm-hmm. possibly find. Um, you know, so and, and so it arrived and we popped it out and plugged it in and immediately Carol went, that sounds way better. Than, yeah. Than oh, Carol wait till and, you get the second one then. Yeah, so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do that was to the HomePod. I listened to the, the Beatle album oh, when we were talking about the Super yeah. Deluxe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really want to hear the, because uh, the bass response on it is amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, and clarity, right? And so, um, yeah, and we're liking the fact that, you know, we can, we can ask Siri to turn lights on and turn them off and that kind of stuff and uh, without and, screaming if, if it's playing music you don't have to yell yeah the way you do with the google home or the amazon echo right right hey, and Siri, then, so, turn the lights on so i came home and uh Oops. oh did you say did you say hey followed by the word Hoist siri? by his own i said hey siri try, turn the lights on oh did you okay don't say that again everybody's lights is going on right now oh, um, Oops. but uh <laughs> the yeah i came home and i plugged it in the kitchen because we have our we have our echo in the kitchen and i basically i th- actually still plugged in up there because I, th- I think one day she accidentally said hey um uh hey alexa hey followed by the word alexa um play something or other on on in in a convention is what you would say to, to siri right and alexa said i think you have me confused with someone else yeah <laughs> that's funny <laughs> but anyway i came home for, i came home from work and carol had had like moved the ipod into the kitchen or into the living area where she was working so that you know it's got that big long six foot cable on it right and she said so i could hear it better and the sound is awesome anyway. It doesn't matter where you put it in, in the house, right? But yeah, so so I realized okay when she's when she's willing to move it into her workspace, she's bought she's bought the she drunk the Kool Aid, right? So it's hers now. <laughs> so yeah, so you realize yeah. you actually need.
need you you have two now or you will have two you're gonna yeah. need another two because she's gonna have both of hers with the both of well they, they are hers now <laughs> as no. with the stereo separation in her work area and yeah, so you're gonna no, if you want to listen to her, you're gonna have to get your own too yeah she, she's more of a dancer she's she's like she's you know her thing was ballet dance and stuff that was just kids yeah. so she's more of a dancer so she's not as much as an auto audio autophile as i am so okay. audiophile so i'm the one that'll want to hear the stereo separation and yeah listen to things like you know wish you were here and roundabout and you know and like you know like i was telling have you listened to well you you haven't had the, heard the stereo separation part of it yet but no yet but no. uh on this on this abbey road reissue mm-hmm. or, or remaster uh what they did with the guitar solos in the in the uh in the end mm-hmm. have you noticed that oh they're they're on each each one on each they reach on a, on a track now yeah in a channel yeah yeah it's pretty cool yeah. i don't know if you if you've ever a friend of mine's a huge bass player or he actually was on bass players i used to play with but he was telling he pointed out to me which i never noticed before that um on the earlier beetle recordings like rubber soul and stuff like that mm-hmm. the bass and drums are on one side and the vocals are on another right and so you can if you listen to one side like if you wanted to learn the bass part you just listen to the one side oh yeah yeah and, yeah so because back when stereo was a thing or a new thing they used to put the the, the instruments in different places and then i remember listening to a roundabout once on a, on a friend's really expensive or sorry yeah i guess fragile or, or um the close to the edge uh, on a friend's really expensive stereo back in the in the um 80s and um because he had one of those macintosh stereo things mm-hmm. and, and the whole nine yards and when you listen to anything by yes you could you could see like where they had placed the the instruments in the room mm. like you could you could distinctly you know hear chris squire over there and john anderson over there and so on and so forth right mm-hmm. yeah so, almost like they planned it that way right yeah. and of course then you've got all the stuff like pink floyd dark side of the moon where they they pan from one side to the other and yep. hendrix did the same thing with his solos and stuff you know trippy stuff yeah yeah so i'm looking forward to getting the second one in to try it out and see what the what goes on right yeah yeah so have you stuff. tried have you tried print i guess you haven't tried voice printing with it right yeah right voice printing uh, apparently it'll you can uh it, it offered a few times for it to recognize my voice versus carol's voice kind of thing oh no i haven't tried that i guess you read it you know four score and 20 years ago or whatever yeah Not, that would make sense four score and seven years ago right i forgot my gettysburg gettysburg already so address that's what i'm looking for the word address all right what else is going on what do you guys do for your break i know Jaime, you, you told me a little bit of on the weekend there but uh how about you mark where'd you, where I, are you up to? I mostly hung around here um went to a couple parties went to the mm-hmm. show on new year's eve that was show for which uh dead and company i was telling you earlier oh dead and company okay, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. Oh, cool yeah. i went and saw um on christmas eve i went and saw star wars again oh second time around. oh so you never yeah you, we never talked the post spoiler discussion we never talked about uh, what you thought of it yeah well we just did a spot cut episode it was i was interesting uh, to hear jonathan's really turned against it <laughs> he's yeah. gone to the dark side what do you think i i thought it was you know pretty weak but kind of in line with expectations mm-hmm. yeah i thought it was i thought it was entertaining i mean it was you know yeah. I, it's it's a star wars thing you're gonna you're not gonna get a horrible thing because it's something we're all tied to right but uh right. once once we started talking about you know like how many times you know a character would get killed off and then be brought back a little while later you know yeah um starting with chewbacca and working its way all even to the end with you know ben uh, ben solo right um, and at the be- beginning with the empire emperor right he was the first 
hurt yeah so yeah well exactly what how, how did he survive all these years yeah. in, in, in a test yeah. tube on a, on life support or whatever right yeah it so. that's that was the, the biggest problem was it was too the whole thing was kind of too contrived yeah you know, oh we need we we killed off our villain last time and well, why did you have to bring him back other than the fact that they were retelling return of the jedi through this story right yeah like, even with know. the ewoks there at the end right yeah yeah to, yeah yeah they had <laughs> to go back to endor end. yeah 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 i i've decided i don't like jj abrams as a director really yeah so well so we were talking too about yeah one thing it's it's jj abrams but there's also the the corporate disney interference too True. didn't you yeah. sort of get a sense of that well it, yeah i mean it, that that didn't help yeah but i found that jj abrams always it seems to me always goes for uh form over or, or for you know flash and and surface uh shininess you know over substance mm, lots lots of um what do you call it uh lens flare <laughs> yeah i mean it, you know it was mm-hmm. it was ex- you know at, at any any given minute of the movie it was exciting yeah. but but then you go back and think about it it's like eh, you know the story kind of didn't really work that way hmm. i thought that of the first movie too of this trilogy i mean they, i mean it was the same story you know but but done not as well right <laughs> right right yeah i don't know maybe you know maybe i'm not the audience anymore the audience is is 10 year olds and that's all it's always that's why people hated the the uh the the prequel trilogy i thought because because all these all these people who saw it when they were 10 years old and yeah. loved, loved the first trilogy right when they were 10 yeah. years old were now 20 years old or older mm-hmm. when the mm-hmm. second trilogy came out and it was made for 10 year olds so of course the 20 year olds are going to hate it because it didn't grow with them right right i think well it's kind of like what we were saying earlier about the you know how are you catering to the gen z this isn't yeah. really our internet anymore right right yeah you know not really our star wars anymore not your star wars anymore yeah not your mother's star wars <laughs> I, I do think that it would have been more cohesive had they had either a plan from the beginning for the trilogy yeah. mm-hmm. or had just left one of the directors as the director for the entire trilogy yeah. the the weird schism between one side wants to go one way and the other side says no go this other way comes through like there's definitely a lot of uh, of time wasted in the prequel trilogy it, particularly episode one doesn't do what it needs to do mm-hmm. so it weakens two and then three in particular mm-hmm. um this one this trilogy didn't need to have that right um but uh, the last jedi and it mentioned this on spotcast like i think the last jedi is a much better piece of cinema mm. and film than than any of the, yeah. the jvj abrams yeah. ones yeah. but it's by far the worst in terms of being a trilogy movie like it doesn't do its job right 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 like, like it spits in the face of the previous movie and it makes the first movie a big waste of time in, in most respects yeah mm. and so then the third movie has to spit in that one's face and make that one a big waste of time like it's just a lot of waste of time like you had three movies you had you know six hours probably closer to like seven or eight hours out of it add up the, the partials like you, you had a lot of time you, you definitely could do uh, a pretty substantial story and and we see that when it comes to um to, to tv series or or you know streaming series yeah uh, look at the, i've not seen the mandalorian but all the love for the mandalorian mm-hmm. series look at just any series it does sort of seem like you know if you've got a plan however sort of flimsy it might be at least you can build off of that yeah well yeah. when you do get around to watching the mandalorian you'll, you'll see it's some awesome good star wars mm-hmm. it's probably better than the star current story a 
Manchester movies, right? Well, I hate to say it, it doesn't take much, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, well, and by the same token, it's just enough, right? Yeah. I actually like, thought the best the best movie out of all the recent ones it was Rogue One. Hmm. So out of the sequel trilogy and Rogue One and Solo, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I've got issues with the first 30 to maybe 40 minutes of that movie. Mm-hmm. Which one? Solo? Uh, uh, Rogue uh, sorry, Rogue One. Oh, Rogue One. Okay. Um, I, I also think Solo suffers from trying to jam in too much. It, it, Solo feels like it could have been two, maybe three movies. Um, Rogue One is pretty nicely compact and self-contained. It just... I don't know. I've been watching it like on TBS or TNT, whatever it is, just on the background on Sundays or, you know, whenever they have holidays. And it really drags in the first 30 minutes. Yeah. I don't like watching those first 30 minutes. But otherwise, like, it's a really kick-ass movie. It, you know, it does a pretty good job of getting the feel. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, know it's you like, know, a, this, like a heist movie. What this movie didn't have was, it didn't have a Yoda pulls out his lightsaber and duels the Empire Emperor moment. Yeah, surprise. Right? Yeah, it didn't yeah. have that. It didn't have a... Oh, no, it did. It, it had it had the light the, the part where Leia and Ben Solo are or Kylo Ren are fighting over the transport. Yeah, but and all of a sudden cares? the lightning bursts from her fingerprints, <laughs> her fingers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think know. about her being a Palpatine? Like, is that oh. was that necessary? Was that necessary? It wasn't necessary. You know, yeah. It, it was like I, I could just see myself in the Disney executive office saying, "Wait a minute, we can't have her not really be a no one. She's got to be someone famous, yeah, and she can't to, just it, be a." Skywalker because that would be too obvious. So who could she be that's even bigger? Yeah, 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 and then they had to bring back the emperor to make it at all make sense, and even though it didn't, <laughs> I don't know. I think I think what they were Disney was looking at was looking at uh, oh yeah, like we really didn't plan out the Marvel movies, and it just sort of worked out. Yeah. It was like yeah, but those were those all sort of fit as independent, self-contained movies that that you know they sprinkle a little bit of like ooh, what if you know what if the Avengers could be a thing, and then yeah. in more movies are like more confident like oh yeah. Like, like we're actually going to start sprinkling in more stuff, not just the end credits. We'll put it as an offhanded comment or somebody makes an appearance. Um, and as, as sort of loosey goosey as it was at the beginning, it sort of gelled and formed into a pretty decent plan for infinity war and yep. mm-hmm. uh, end game. But star Wars is a little bit different unless you're going to do like this complete, very Marvel style, like completely separate stories. And like, Oh, like, did you see that dude in the background? I think that dude was from rogue one, you know, like you'd have to do right. that sort of level. You can't, can't have like a oh this is um the same sort of uh you know ring cycle wagner-esque sort of saga without it being a whole lot more tight and cohesive yeah. right. and and I, I just have to say the the characters are, were not strong in the whole second trilogy the whole third trilogy uh I, I didn't i didn't get ray at all as a lead character you know she didn't really go through the same i mean they tried to make her go through the same arc that luke skywalker went through right mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. she didn't really do it i mean yeah, she kind of did some training and suddenly was not a Jedi because there's no more Jedi's, right? right. I, I, yeah, but Leia was training her apparently. Yeah, yeah, but but then she's not a Jedi at the end, right? Because there are no more Jedi's. Mm-hmm. Or is she a Jedi? Or I don't know. And, I don't know. And who cares? <laughs> and and well, she's Skywalker, right? She's rise. Yeah, she's, she's adopted that name at the end there, right? So, so okay, so there'll be some sequels then. Okay, <laughs> I know they, they've promised to they promised to have more movies. They're going to do movies up until you know the next yeah. ten years or something. But apparently Ryan. Johnson, Jonathan was saying yesterday, he's apparently doing a trilogy on his own. Which one is he? He's the one that did the second, uh, the, oh. the um, Last Jedi. 
okay. Yeah. So because he because he broke with form and he went off and he tr- that story tries to sell some to sell something Try new, something right? new. Yeah. And and Jonathan was defending even George Lucas is that even for all of his faults, he at least he introduced new things yeah. in each movie. Yeah. He did. That's what I hate about J.J. Abrams. It's all just a rehash of old stuff. Yeah. Fan yeah. service. Yeah. I mean, you can say the same thing about the Star Trek stuff too, right? Yeah. Because, oh yeah, absolutely. Cause, yeah. Because it's just it's just you know oh it's a different you know different Spock or wait there's two Spocks or right you know. right mm-hmm. it's a, yeah having yeah. second pretty movies the second though Spock, they're pretty movies they're very pretty movies having the second Spock there just was not needed you know just write a good story and you don't need a gimmick yeah you you think they just we would have we would have bought the new guy uh, Zachary Quinto or whatever his name is as Spock without having the Leonard Nimoy in it well but, you know yeah I mean right if they had written a good story yeah yeah I mean those, I mean I like the, I like Carl Urban Carl Urban as uh, as McCoy he does a real good job yeah. and he's completely different than DeForest Kelly DeForest Kelly right so, yeah. yeah Kylo, yeah. Kylo Ren yeah. was still a sulky teenager Darth Vader wannabe in movie three even though he is the most powerful guy now he's still sulking around yeah. wearing this yeah. wannabe Darth Vader mask what was that all about still having a penis measuring contest with Hux yeah exactly yeah with who who's, Hux, the, who's the, the, the guy who turned the redheaded um, guy they're the ones who were in you know I, I don't care what happens as long as the other guy loses that guy he's the spy he gets shot oh, the spy who got Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, so so Hux is the perfect example of not having a plan, and you can't let Abrams go one way and Ryan Johnson go another. Yeah. So in the first movie, Hux is space Nazi, right? Can yeah. we agree on that? that yeah. See, I didn't even remember like, that that guy was in the first movie because he be, Ryan Johnson turns him to an absolute joke in the second. I don't remember movie. he was in the second movie. They didn't establish the character strongly enough for me to even. He was just some guy, some officer on the Death Star. <laughs> to me. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think it's. That's I think it's fine yeah. if if a guy starts there and then you can you can sort of grow from there. But it's it's so weird how the the movies just don't fit, right? You have Ray sort of going through the the same beginnings of the arc as like Luke Skywalker, but then the, her her Empire Strikes Back part of the arc is completely messed up. Her Luke's like, no, I'm not going to train you. Right. That. Like right. I'm done. <laughs> Destroy all the dead uh, Jedi. It would have been a rehash to just have him be you know the yeah the Yoda, Yoda equivalent, yeah. Yeah. but it would feel more sensible right yeah. it might be rehashed but at least sensible in, in the way that this trilogy handled it it's nonsensical or how about tell a difference tell a new story <laughs> and that's fine but you got to start out there well, that's, right? I mean, that's what i mean yeah yeah it, you know it's you got to start out with the plan of we're doing a new story or you got to start of a plan of like we're rehashing and you can't have both yeah, it should have been a remake it. or it should have been something completely different yeah right like yeah. all of the all of the uh, all of the sci-fi authors who you know in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s you know re rehashed and revisited their stuff, told a new story. Like, if you look at what Asimov did with the Foundation, you know, the first three books were like six, five or six different stories that just kind of went off on all these different directions. And then he started doing the robot series and then he started bringing the robot and Empire together. And then he did prequels, you know, but in each one of those, even the prequels kind of were went in a different direction and it all tied up in the end, yeah. you know, just before he died. And right? all that so, stuff was standalone. You could read any one of those books independently. And you, yeah, and you didn't need to read story. anything yeah. else. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. it was all it was all amazing. Like when when Daniel Ovala meets you know the uh, the the hero at, in the very last book on the living on the moon or something like that. I forget where he was, but when he shows up as like oh my god, it's him. You know, it was like an amazing you know reveal. Right, you were not expecting that, or maybe you were. I don't know. It depends. Jonathan probably saw that coming a mile away, but <laughs> it fooled me. Let's put it that way. When I was reading that stuff, right? You know, um, like Heinlein when he did recurring character, he always had recurring characters in his story yeah. arcs and yeah. there's one book called glory road where the character goes into he's traveling through diff- 
different, or maybe it's a, another movie, but there's one where you go through parallel universes, and one of the universes is where all of Heinlein's characters live as right. characters written by Heinlein, not standalone individuals, right? And they all know their characters written by Heinlein, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of a funny twist, you know, like it's an interesting sort of fresh way of, of bringing all, you know, the, the fan favorites back in, but not in a sort of cheesy way, right? Yeah. In kind of a unique way. But, I mean, they've got a lot to draw on from what sci-fi authors have done over the years, right? Why don't they Why don't they take a fresh approach to it? Yeah. Does it make any sense? Yeah, I think for my money, if I had a, a you know, mid-tier studio, what I would do is take, um, not try to do like, oh, let's do a remake of this movie. It's like, but mm-hmm. that movie's a classic. How are you going to outdo that one? That's a dumb idea. Mm-hmm. What if you take middling to maybe even poor movies where the basic idea might have been kind of good, but the execution sucked yeah. and remake, you know, a so-so movie? I bet you could get the rights really cheap. You'd have the framework <laughs> of like, you're basically not doing anything new. It's just, yeah. what if we didn't suck at executing on here? Yeah. And I'd have to, you know, comb through the list of things, but I'm like, what if you had a really kick-ass plan nine from outer space? Yeah. And one last thing about Star Wars. Didn't bringing back the Emperor pretty much make the entire middle trilogy irrelevant? You mean the prequels? No. Uh, sorry. No. The four, episode four, five, six. The originals. Bringing him back? Yeah, because yeah. the climax was when Darth Vader throws him down the, right. the tube, right? Right, right. In the Jedi. Right. Yeah. And it definitely and Luke Skywalker is dead, so the whole the whole hero's journey arc is gone, and Darth yeah. Vader is gone. So all of that stuff is kind of irrelevant; had no effect on anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The coolest thing was that that Ben Solo turned bad, you know, despite his parents' best wishes, which is what happens in real life, right? But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I always go back to I don't believe George Lucas for a, a minute that when he did what we now call a New Hope, he actually had plans to do sequels. I mean, he I know he had this big long story that he'd written because mm-hmm. he's he came out like after 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 it was such a big success you know he came back and said well you know i, I planned on doing three movies right mm-hmm. and that's you know that was sort of an after the fact thing and then then they went and slapped the label new hope on on the original star wars movie but when you think if you look at that that movie by itself at the end they defeat the evil empire by yeah. you know dropping the the bomb into the into that uh, vent in in the side of the death star and the death star blows up and that's the big climax right right it's done that by yeah. itself is yeah. enough Right, you know? right. I mean, I know Empire Strikes Back is, is a better movie and all that kind of stuff, but they didn't even have to do that much. Yeah, right? George Lucas was probably going to plan and go to go do American Graffiti Part Two after that, or well, something like that. He did like actually. Oh, he did he? did. There, <laughs> yeah, there was American Graffiti Two, Electric Boogaloo. But I mean, like you know, like, like you think about it though. So, so then the two of them went away and wrote like uh, in between these movies, they went and wrote, they wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark, the two Spielberg and, and Lucas, and um, what's the other one? Blade Runner, right? Is another movie that came out of that sort of those group of guys right or those that sort of cadre of, of directors right so Blade Runner is kind of tied into to that as well and Blade Runner is another amazing movie and it, how long did it take them to do a second movie and I like I love the second movie don't get me wrong the one they just did a couple of years ago but like it didn't need to happen either you know I, I watch Blade Runner any day of the week anytime you know like if it's on I watch it you know if same thing with Star Wars if it's on the original Star Wars I watch it you know one thing I found though from to speaking of irrelevancy Mark is that I can't watch the prequels anymore after after even after mm-hmm. this you know because i i liked um force awakened a lot i thought it was a, an interesting romp you know which one was that that's the first of the new ones with ray and, and finn oh, okay. uh, poe dameron right so yeah I was oh, actually reading so here. Who, who is that last character you mentioned poe dameron the x-wing fighter oh oh the useless that's guy right. who did absolutely nothing oh yeah him <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one who's always freaking out and and, and disobeying orders that's him right. that's his role in life yeah wait wasn't that he's the rebel. solo wait a minute what 
He's the rebel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was a, there was a, and, and how come they had uh, the guy from lost on there? The Hobbit, the Hobbit from lost. Yeah. yeah what was yeah, he doing yeah, there? <laughs> they had Pippin there. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, no, but, wait, but he does that all the time. Like, well, it was either Mary has, or Pippin. Oh, yeah, Mary. I, I think his thing is Mary. Yeah. And he also has that guy, the, the heavy guy from, he's, he's in everything. He was in heroes and he was in, he was in lost. I forgot his name now. Um, he plays, he, he plays, a, there's a couple of books that this, I think there's two or three books that go between, um, the Return of the Jedi and the first of The Force Awakens. There's three books that some guy wrote, and the lead, one of the main characters is that guy mm. who's George, who's um, not John Favreau. He looks like John Favreau. Help me out here, honey. Come on. Uh, yeah, I kind of know who you're talking about, but I, I don't know the actor's name. You go to the IMDb here. IMDb. He played the cop in Heroes. I don't know if you remember if you watch Heroes. I never oh, really I know got into Heroes. About, yeah, I know, that, I know who you're talking about. Was Dark, he in there? Dark I guess Dark he was, yeah. Yeah, aged a few years from Heroes. Yeah. yeah. The name is. And they had uh, Billy Lord, uh, Harry Fisher's daughter, was in there doing a cameo for nothing. Dude. Well, no, no. I'll tell you something about that. It's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. Dominic, Dominal, Gle- Dominal Gleason is General Hux. Um, I know what you, I'm just, I was looking for the... Um, I got to go, go to the full... See the full cast list here. Um, but I was just reading online while, while you guys were talking that apparently Billy Lord played young Leia in those scenes where you see young Leia in Luke. He was the, the stand-in for... She was like the model for that? For her mother. No, oh, you, okay. in some of the scenes where she where you see young Leia, that's actually her. Billy Lord. Hmm. I mean, that's fine, but you know, but she was rebel soldier X. 27. Yeah. 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 Even Warwick Davis was in there, too. Did he reprise his role as, as Wicked? He did. He did play movie? Wicked, but he also played another character named Wolavan. Greg, Greg Grunberg? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, Greg Grunberg is his name. Anyway, on that happy note, I have to go and uh, start thinking about my dental appointment in the morning. <laughs> All right, have fun. Is it just a checkup or? Yeah, it's just a checkup and cleaning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't. Been, I've got. I got to use up some of my my uh, expense money from last year or benefits money because I didn't do any dentist dental dentalry and we roll over in March, right? So. Uh, all right. All right. Have a good night. Talk to you later. later. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.